The U.S. women's national soccer team has won four FIFA World Cups since their inception, while the men's team has yet to make it to the finals. So why do the women have less to show for it on payday? Dr. Mary Ann Taylor has joined us to discuss the most recent settlement between U.S. women's pro soccer and their players regarding the gender pay gap. She'll also give us some actionable advice on how we can support women's sports in all its forms. How I talk about women's sports, how I stop saying revenue's the only model that matters, and just adding a couple of things to my Instagram. Boom. Three things that immediately add to the women's game. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Dr. Marianne Taylor, welcome to Campus on the Common. Now, you're an expert of many things, but one of the things I was most impressive when you were a guest lecturer at my class is your knowledge of women's sports, in particular, Team USA. Recently in the news, there were a series of stories relevant to a settlement between women's, the women's side and the Federation. I wonder if you could give us some context into what was the issue and what happened. Sure. Well, Mark, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the U.S. Women's National Team, so anytime I can, I can talk about it, I can just geek out for a while. It's a good question, and it starts with a history. So the, I think the important thing is the settlement is um, very important. And we can talk about all the reasons why, because there were some uh, sort of points in the news where where kind of a, a camp of folks said this isn't as big as we wanted it to be. Another camp of folks said this is a really good start. Um, and we can sort of talk about those camps and the players within them. So it is a really important settlement for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not new. I think folks, particularly with this last World Cup national team, and obviously you had sort of the, the Megan Rapinoe of it all with Donald Trump um, and some of the things that were making headway in the news, we think this is kind of a new issue, but this is one of multiple suits um, and equal opportunity claims that the U.S. Women's National Team has levied against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Probably the two most notable um, were going into the 2015 World Cup and then this lawsuit going into the 2019 um, World Cup. And what's so impressive about both of those are they waged lawsuits going into a World Cup knowing that with that kind of world spotlight, they had to win and they had to do well. So playing under that kind of pressure, I think says just all you need to know about this team. That's just kind of how they, it's their modus operandi, nothing, nothing easy. I think one of the most important things about the lawsuit is they didn't have to to settle, and they being the U.S. Soccer Federation. So two years ago, a judge threw out this lawsuit. So I'm wondering if we could just take a step back. Sure. What was the suit for? Equal pay, equitability, it means different things to different people. And so I'm going to kind of summarize this in a way that I best understand it, knowing that I can't possibly get everything. But a lot of people think about equal pay in a dismissive way that suggests women should make as much as men. That's very reductive and it's very simplistic because that is really not anywhere close to what a lawsuit like this and this magnitude does. Equitability is really tied not to dollars that go in your pocket, but to investment in the actual programs themselves. So when the first lawsuit started to happen and really this started to gain traction even after the 99ers, which we can uh, talk about kind of the, the most famous team that really kind of spearheaded a lot of where we have come today. Some of the big complaints, in, um, and I, when I say complaints, I mean federal um, complaints, lawsuit complaints, were equitable playing conditions. Men don't play on turf. 
Women play typically on substandard fills. We know, particularly in this sport, that turf causes injury. Men charter flights and, and buses. Women, particularly in the professional league and also for a long time in the national league, do not. Uh, so when you're competing, taking five and six commercial flights like regular people do and then playing the sport at the highest level, that may not seem like a lot to the kind of the non-athletic layperson, but that is that's a fairness issue. Big differences in meal and per diem distribution, that is gender discrimination as far as how it's recognized equally under the law because obviously we're stereotyping how much women should be getting for their nutrition versus men. So the lawsuit really put a highlight on some of these inequities of just the day-to-day kind of treatment and investment. And then the big investment is just the men are operating out of a much bigger FIFA pool. For example, the FIFA Men's World Cup pool is $400 million. The U.S. Women's National Team and FIFA World Cup is pulling from a $30 million. And I'll say that a few times. $400 million, $30 million, $430. And so the investment in things like youth soccer are coming from those pots of money. Investments in how youth soccer travels to play national and on the world stage comes from that pot of money. So when you wage a lawsuit like this, yes, it's about getting paid more at the end of the day because all of this is sort of upstream, downstream. So if you invest more at the foundational levels that will go upstream and women will get more money in their pockets. And so some of this is uh, we want to be paid more, but it's much, much more systematic um, and systemic than that of we also want equitable treatment under the law. We also don't want to participate in gender-based discrimination based on sort of old, outdated gender stereotypes. Um, And we also want to see that money um, more broadly distributed between the women's and men's team because, frankly, the women's team has been on a world stage much more successful than the men's team. And so I think that's an important question you ask because a lot of people are paying attention to this, the settlement was a $24 million payout. I would argue that's that wasn't the most important part of the lawsuit. Yes, $24 million when it's equitably distributed among 30 years of players, former and current players, you know, maybe that's each player getting $50,000. That's not the big win. And someone like a Hope Solo and a Carly Lloyd alluded to that on a podcast. To me, the big win is, though, is to start um, bringing attention to a collective bargaining agreement um, where the men and women negotiate together instead of separately and also closing the gaps on some of these inequitable treatments. And I think that's um, that's where the big win of this lawsuit was, the fact that it even happened. And then also uh, some of some of the, the dialogue that now the, the U.S. Soccer Federation under its new leadership um, understands they have to close some of those gaps. The way you point the picture, the inequities just seem incredible, and it would seem like this would be a slam dunk. How long were these suits active in court, and why did it take so long to reach a settlement? As we know with anything in legal systems and government systems, the legal system is not always on par with sort of the social and cultural understanding of uh, gender and inequities and what fairness and equitability looks like in since we're talking about sports, sports specifically. And so I think some of that had to even out. You know, if you look at two years before the settlement, when a judge threw out the lawsuit, almost all of the counts of the lawsuit that was filed right before the 2019 World Cup, when that lawsuit was dismissed, some of the language was that was used in that lawsuit straight up said women athletes are inferior to men. 
And so when you have a judge who throws out a lawsuit, and that is a number one cultural distinction, I think based on some really deep-seated problematic associations with what we think about gender and athletes. And then also the judge cited that, which is a fact, that the women made more um, than men because women win more than men and they also play more than men. But that is not the whole story, of course, because they're playing more and they're winning more, but they're not pulling from the same pot of money. That's the inequity. So I think to answer your question, it's two-pronged. When that lawsuit was dismissed, I very much think it was from kind of some deep-seated, rooted cultural and ideological limitations that power brokers and gatekeepers have about women athletes. Um, And I think we've seen a lot of these women national teams and global national teams really start to bust open that narrative in a really important way. And I think the second thing is legally that judge saw it that the women were making um, at the time, which they were at the time, uh, more money than their male counterparts. So that's, that's why that lawsuit was dismissed. But again, why this settlement is so important is U.S. soccer under Cindy Parlow, the new president, came back after that lawsuit was dismissed and still settled. Um, on the two remaining cases that weren't dismissed, and that didn't have to happen. So I think that's what it shows that U.S. Soccer Federation understands that they need to change culturally. They did that first by electing a new president, Cindy Parlow, and um, the second, her first deal of business was the settlement, uh, which they didn't have to do. So it's it's, um, just as symbolic as it is material, which I think is important. Now, you pointed out there were a number of different layers associated with the suit, many of which have been dismissed. Be that as it may, these seem to be legitimate points when you talk about equity in sports. And it's super that $24 million are making their way to players. But what about all those other issues that you raised? Where does it stand right now? So the end game here, we saw some movement in this settlement. We saw some some promises and some legal promises from U.S. Soccer Federation. And I think it's important for our listeners to, to really contextualize this as U.S. Soccer and U.S. Soccer Federation. So national teams are not the professional leagues. MLS, NWSL are not affected by any of this language. It's just the national teams on a global soccer scale that has more of a club system, very different than what we're talking about. So I, number one, I think it's important to differentiate that. Second, to your point, um, U.S. Soccer has now made some promises about close some of those gaps in things like travel and playing conditions. This is where, to me, the settlement fell a little short, but it started the conversation. The big ask of this U.S. women's national team, and they did not get it in the settlement, was we want to go to a collective bargaining table with the men's national team. Because if the men's national team and the women's national team are entering a CBA together, we're all going to be pulling from the same pot of money. So we're going to be pulling from your FIFA money. You're going to be pulling for our FIFA money. Rising tides lift all boats. It doesn't seem like the U.S. women are going to start losing anytime soon. So they're still going to be revenue and a profitable team. And that is going to take some negotiation with the men's national team because that, you know, I would imagine they see those revenues as something they don't want to part with, but also they will now have new revenue from the sponsors and revenue that they bring in. And so that's the that's the big goal. And that's what this lawsuit wanted was one collective bargaining agreement. They didn't get it. They didn't get it in the settlement, but it started the conversation and it's starting to get people talking in that direction to say, no, the settlement wasn't the ultimate success we wanted, but it was a really important conversation to start. 
And if we can get to that same CBA, then we're in business. That is when we see more equitability at every level, the national teams, the youth teams, um, the investment programs at, a, at the very bottom level, pulling from all the pots of money instead of the pots of money now that are very much siloed into both of those teams. When they were trying to negotiate the settlement, what was the argument going against a collective bargaining agreement? That's a great question. It's really nuanced and complicated, and I am, number one, not a legal expert, and number two, a lot of those negotiations are behind closed doors. So I'm going to speak a little bit from what the players themselves and Cindy Parlow, the president, reported out of those negotiations. And then hopefully that'll spawn maybe people looking into it themselves because it is, I don't want to speak out of turn and say, oh, this was the one thing because it's a complicated issue, which is why some people see the settlement as a success and others see it as as not enough. But I think the really hard part about a CBA is heretofore women have negotiated very specific things in their CBA that men have never had to negotiate. And this is where women soccer players, for example, I say this and it's so laughable because I, you know, pick your favorite men's soccer player and imagine him having a day job. Women at the time the first uh, CBA was negotiated were having to work outside of their national team. Um, So doing a day job like nursing or school teaching and still training for a national team because there wasn't enough money to pay them as solely professional athletes. So they were negotiating guaranteed money. They were also negotiating insurance for injuries in the event that they didn't have sort of a situation to go back to. Men's teams didn't have to negotiate that because the pot of money was so big. They were also negotiating protections like motherhood that couldn't be kicked off a a team because of what was sort of required as an athlete to also take time off for motherhood. Again, not something that the men's national team is, is negotiating. So the CBAs were very different and very specifically different towards some of the obstacles that women more than men in this case were dealing with. And so a lot of folks didn't want to poke holes in the notion of that CBA because we're still not seeing, for example, like an NWSL have nearly the amount of influx of money. And so people have short careers. They also have work outside of those careers. They play internationally. They have to use other opportunities to pad that CBA because money is going into other things within their collective bargaining agreement. Now that we're advancing so much and the conversation is advancing so much culturally, the women side or the women's national team sees being able to share a collective bargaining agreement that has the same characteristics um, and doesn't have those very specific gendered markers would be something that created more equitability for both sides. And so to answer your question, it's really complicated because for a long time, the CBA for women had to have built-in parameters to protect women because if they were to sign a CBA um, that looked like the men's, they wouldn't have those protections and they also wouldn't have that revenue because they weren't pulling from that revenue pot. So it was tough. And and now we're, we've sort of seen advancements in a way where some of those things can, they don't have to be dictated um, in new CBAs very much encourage folks who are interested in that and like to geek out on the legal language of of those types of things like collective bargaining agreements um, to spend some time and to to really ask yourself, why does the CBA for women look so different? It, It looks different because women for all of U.S. Soccer Federation's existence since the time they recognized women professionally, which was in 1985, has been so gendered and so inequitable that 
women soccer players were negotiating with bad faith actors. And so they were putting things into their negotiation to protect their careers and to protect their livelihoods in ways that men didn't have to negotiate. Very interesting. Enlightening, actually. So the issue hasn't gone away. There's been what some consider a victory. Some consider it's not big enough victory, but there's been some progress, but there's still much more to do. What do you see as the next steps towards you know, creating an actual equitable system in professional women's sports? I think on the national level in the United States, the next big goal is that CBA. As fans, as people who are interested in this, getting in that conversation, moving that needle in that um, sort of cultural conversation of, of having a, a one single collective bargaining agreement for the men's national team and the women's national team under the blanket of the U.S. Soccer Federation. That is the goal. And I'm not saying the goal ends there because... If folks are listening to this um, podcast, they're probably very familiar with FIFA and its inadequacies, but um, the U.S. Soccer Federation is a national federation under the FIFA blanket. FIFA has a big gender problem on a global level, and so getting that one collective bargaining agreement to is a step by a national federation, and we're seeing other countries make these movements. Australia has. Um, Australia understood that the men's and women's um, national federations had could put more pressure on FIFA towards equitability if they join forces. Uh, we've seen it in Norway. We're starting to see movements gain in Spain. That is really the direction because these strong alliances on a, on a national federation level are what can push FIFA. Um, so I would say if you ask me the ultimate goal, it's to really push FIFA to be better in so many ways. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have a strong federation. And right now, our federation, there's just not a lot of trust there between the women's and men's national teams. Because historically, even though the women's team won much more and has had a lot more success on a global uh, stage competitively, has still in many ways by the federation been seen as extra revenue as not the priority as an as an inferior kind of second hand to the men's national team and we're starting to see that gap close and that's that's to me that was the important statement of this settlement for our listeners the next big step i think is really having that conversation of what it looks like to have one cba one strong federation national team men's and women's and not separated at the cba level I'm wondering what's happening in other countries regarding women's professional soccer. Lots of important things are happening on a on a global level and we see it most recently in Barcelona with the selling out or the selling beyond a sellout of 93,000 fans for the match between the women's or the women's clubs teams of Barcelona and Madrid. And that is not new. I know that that everyone thinks, oh, wow, where did this come from? But this has been uh, 10 years in the making with some of these same conversations at the club level of Barcelona and Madrid starting to invest in women's programs at their club level and in the national team. So we see a very young and frankly inferior World Cup team in the 2015 uh, World Cup in Spain. More investment happens 2019. They make it to qualifiers or the round of 16, I forget, almost beat the U.S. women's national team. And now three years later, we see a sellout of 93,000 fans. So just in 10, 15 short years to go from almost no investment from club level and national team, that's a really positive sign. Having gender equitability between the men's and women's national team in Australia, 
that is a huge sign. Of course, they in New Zealand are hosting the 2023 World Cup um, next summer. So that will bring a lot of attention uh, to their program. Again, we see it in a lot of European countries. I feel like where the real imbalance is, which is why all of this is so important, and I love that you asked that, Mark, these conversations at these levels with these power teams, I'm talking about the, the U.S. women's national team is perennially the number one or top three women's soccer program in the world. The others who are up there, France, Germany, the Netherlands are making a case. Um, Spain's coming on strong. Australia's in the top 10. Advancements in European soccer, um, certainly the the UK and their English team as well, um, like Spain, has made big investments in the past 10 or 15 years. They were also slow to do a whole lot with women's programs. We're not seeing that same advancement in Central American teams, national teams in Africa. We don't see the level of investment in uh, the Chinese team. So it's it's a start, and it's, it's that sort of uh, tipping point or inflection point we need to see um, to make FIFA invest more on a global scale. For example, um, a team like Nigeria, who's one of my favorite teams, if you've ever watched that women's uh, national team play, a lot of them will play in um, American professional leagues or play in colleges here in the United States, go back and play for their national team. Their sophistication, their aggressiveness, the way they play, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous game. Their federation notoriously does not invest in women's sports. The only way a federation like that or like federations even Mexico, um, Argentina, Brazil. Um, Brazil has the two best players in women's soccer, one being Marta. To get those federations to invest in their women's team takes FIFA pressure. Teams like the U.S. women's national team can put that pressure on FIFA, particularly if they join with the U.S. men's national team under one CBA and as one federation and puts that kind of really microscope on FIFA and the inequities particularly in in countries that are not European, because of course that that begs the question and asks the question, you know, why is it that we're seeing all of these advancements in largely Western and largely white teams? And I think the answer to that question is a big ideological gap at the FIFA level and even at the cultural level. So we need to see those inflection points um, to really put pressure on FIFA so that these other federations that don't have the resources the U.S. Women's National Team has can have those same resources because it grows the game. And as that game gets grown globally, it's going to be better um, for both sides, men's and women's. So in our remaining time, I wondered if you could give us three takeaways for the audience. I'm very passionate about um, women's sports. So I even kind of outside of soccer, I'm going to think about this more more holistically, just as a fan and also some of my research and scholarship looks at this as a, as a rhetorician. I'm just really interested by the language we use to talk about power structures and to talk about women's sports and, and equity and women's investment. So the first takeaway that I want our audience to know is just be very mindful and conscious of the language that you use as a consumer consumer of sports. So I hear a lot, whether it's from students or just even friends of, oh, I don't, I don't watch women's basketball. I don't love the game. You know, just a slight change of that of women's basketball is different than men's. They don't dunk as much, but it's a beautiful game is a big difference in how an audience kind of considers that information rather than just 
be using language is very dismissive because that dismissive can make something feel very inferior. So that's the number one takeaway for me is always just as a consumer of sports, be very mindful about how you talk about women athletes and women's bodies because the work that they are putting in is equitable to the work that is being put in by their counterpart men's teams. Just the way culture and revenue has looked at that has been through inequitable models. So that's number one. I think number two is, is sort of train yourself to not value teams based on revenue models only. And we do that, right, with men's sports. You know, men's golf doesn't make as much as the NBA or Major League Baseball, but we still watch it every Sunday on CBS and these big networks. So just because something is not a revenue maker doesn't make it less valuable. And I hear a lot of folks be dismissive of women's sports because they say, oh, they don't make as much money as men's. Number one, I would say factually, they make a lot of money. Just look at the numbers of how many people watched and invested in the Women's March Madness Championship this year. So they do make a lot of money, but even if it's not as much as their counterpart, Men's March Madness or NBA versus WNBA, it doesn't make it any less valuable. There are fans who want to see that. There are sponsors who want to invest in it. So don't attach value to revenue is number two. And I think number three is just... As a consumer, participate, add some women's sports to your Instagram feed or TikTok, and you will not be disappointed. I promise I'm thinking about Sedona out of the Oregon uh, basketball team, who's sort of all the rage uh, right now with with her social media presence. Paige Buckers of UConn just um, surpassed 1 million Instagram followers. I follow a lot of different podcasts and women's sports teams that are just on my Instagram feed. And when you start adding that to your everyday consumption as a sports viewer, Um, then whether you even know you're actively participating and helping the game, you are by increasing those followers, by watching um, more sports, by getting involved, by also giving your dollars, like buying, you know, Megan Rapinoe jersey to kind of add to your jersey list. That way of spending your consumer dollars or consumer time to also give towards women's sports, uh, I always recommend and you won't be disappointed because there are some some characters (laughs) in the in the women's sports game. Those are very simple personal decisions you can make in your everyday, how I talk about women's sports, how I stop saying revenue's the only model that matters, and just adding a couple of things to my Instagram. Boom. Three things that immediately add to the women's game. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Marianne Taylor. Dr. Marianne Taylor is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Emerson College. Professor Taylor is a rhetoric and gender scholar with a primary research emphasis on challenging dominant discourses of politics, sports, and civility. Her work is published in American Behavioral Scientist, the Journal of Women and Language Qualitative Health Research, and several other edited volumes, including a co-authored chapter on women's soccer in Being Better, What We Learned from the 2019 FIFA World Cup. Campus in the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Our executive producer is Dean Raoul Rice. Lucas Poyser is our producer. Chase Taylor is our associate producer. Oliver Glass is our chief engineer. Campus in the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.